Amen. Amen. That was the best Easter reading I have ever heard in my life. Hey, happy Easter, City Light Church. Okay, uh, if there's any other churches taking applications, I'll be putting one in. Um, I would like to wish you a happy Easter, and uh, what you wish me is up to you. I'm glad to be here. Jesus is alive, and today is a day of celebration. Uh, if you're new, let me say welcome. My name is Gavin. It's my joy to serve this church family as one of the pastors, and uh, to get to open the Word of God on this Easter morning is such a joy. I just want to start by reminding us we are here today to celebrate the most important moment in all of human history. We are here to celebrate the moment that turned the world inside out. Without this moment, no human on earth has a lick of hope, but because of this moment and in this moment, anyone who finds and trusts Jesus has hope and eternal life. We're here to celebrate the moment that the man, Jesus Christ, literally, physically, historically rose from the grave. Jesus is now alive. He is ruling. He is reigning. And he is here. Amen? One Christian in the room. Let's go. This is my fourth time. If you don't help me, I won't make it through. Um, I do have to say it was a bit of a mix of emotions this morning. As I woke up yesterday, I got to preach the resurrection story, woke up with all the Easter happiness this morning, and then my wife sent me a text about the bombings in Sri Lanka. I don't know if you guys heard about it. More than 200 dead in Sri Lanka. It was churches that were targeted. So our brothers and sisters Christ, as they worship Jesus on an Easter morning, um, what an evil, satanic, horrific event uh, that more than 200 would lose their lives as they came together to celebrate Jesus. And it was like, uh, I don't know if we're supposed to be happy today or more, and there's so much going on. How do you even speak to it? And, uh, and then a, a quote came to my mind that I thought was appropriate. And it was Martin Luther, the great reformer. And he said, let us sing songs and spite the devil. And I thought, if there's ever a morning to rejoice in the resurrection, it's this morning. These dear brothers and sisters lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus. But guess what? Jesus, or the devil can kill him, but he can't keep him dead. He couldn't keep Jesus dead. And these dear saints too will rise on that last day. And even though we grieve with our brothers and sisters halfway around the world, we celebrate that they can't stop Jesus and they couldn't stop them. And they too will rise. Amen. So the best thing we can do this morning is spite the devil, give him the proverbial middle finger and say, you don't win. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to declare this. And guess what? I guarantee you, you watch the spread of the gospel in one of the darkest corners of the nation will only accelerate. You cannot stop Jesus, not through worldly violence, not through political opposition. Jesus will advance. And so this morning, I just want to recalibrate our hearts and remind us Christianity, listen, it's not about a code of conduct. It's not about a system of living. It's not about a religious system. It's not about a tradition. It is about a man, the person Jesus Christ. Listen, God created you to know him, to worship him, and to exist for his glory. And yet the Bible says that we have all sinned and rebelled against him. We've been separated from him. But the man Jesus came, God himself put on flesh, came as our substitutionary savior. He lived the righteous life that you and I ought to live but have not. He died the death that we deserve to die, and yet he did it in our place. And today we celebrate that Jesus, the living person, kicked the end out of a borrowed tomb, rose victoriously, and now is alive. And so I want to recalibrate our hearts around the person of Jesus this morning. 
And I want you to know this morning is personal for me too. I'm not just here as a pastor in my men's warehouse suit, looking fresh with a fresh fade to put on a show. This morning is worshipful. I met Jesus when I was about 16 years of age. Grew up a moderately religious kid, but it was when I was 16 that I realized Jesus isn't a religion. He's not some ink on a page. He's a person, and he loves me, and he showed me my sin, and he showed me his grace. I gave him my guilt, and he gave me his righteousness, and I became a child of God by grace. And today is a joy that I get to celebrate that my God is alive and he loves me and he's working in the world. And I pray that you would come to know him too. If you know Jesus personally like I do, you know why I'm excited today. And if you don't know Jesus, I'm praying that before you get to the ham this afternoon, you would come to know Jesus. You would understand the story and his story would become your story. And so here's what we're going to do today. Uh, If you're new, I want to say welcome. You're joining us in the second to last sermon of a series. Who planned Easter that way? It was me. But let me explain what we did this year. Uh, We're going through the Gospel of Matthew. And the Bible has four biographies of Jesus. We call them the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the first one. It was written by an acquaintance, a follower, a friend, a, a colleague, a follower of Jesus named Matthew. And it tracks the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so on Christmas, we start at the very beginning. We read the account of Jesus' incarnation coming to the world, the birth. And then for the last several months, we've just tracked through what did Jesus teach? What was his life? We saw his miracles. We saw his teaching. We saw his ministry. Uh, this weekend, we saw the, 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 the charges that were brought against him and his horrific crucifixion on Friday night. And then this morning, Easter Sunday morning, uh, we get to come and see the climax of the whole thing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it comes in chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. And as I prepared for this, here's the insecurity every pastor feels on Easter. Can I just tell you, we're all feeling it. You're thinking, I preach the same thing every year. You know, like, what do you say that's fresh? And I found such confidence in the Word of God this year. Because I, the, the, the temptation is just to say, just lead with hype and personality and get excited and they'll get excited and we'll have the ham. And I thought, no, the, the magic is in the word of God. It's living and it's active and it's like a dime. It doesn't matter how many times you've read it. If you look again, you'll see how beautiful it is once again. And this year as I looked at it, I felt like God showed me, don't, don't just look at the text, look at the context, look at either side of it. And what I realized is that if you understand the resurrection in context of what happens on either side of it, you see a new emphasis start to emerge. And uh, here's what I saw. Matthew goes out of his way to tell a similar story before and after the resurrection account. If I can nerd out for just a minute, push my glasses up, the literary term is called an inclusio, okay? Don't don't lose me. It's all going to be fun again in just a moment. But inclusio is a literary device wherein the author frames in his thesis by two supporting stories, and as you read them together, the frame and the picture, you know, the, the bread and the meat of the sandwich, it reveals the emphasis that he's trying to get at. And as I looked at this inclusio, this sandwich, I realized, oh, Matthew was trying to show us not only that Jesus rose from the dead, he's trying to show us something more. Sandwiched on either side of this resurrection story are the accounts of opposition of Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that. At the very beginning, we see the religious leaders that that don't like Jesus. They don't like his message. They don't like what he's doing. They're trying to stomp it out, and they're scheming, and they're opposing Jesus, and they're trying to stop this madness from proceeding. And on the other end of the resurrection, you see the same thing, the same group trying to stomp it out. How do we start rumors? How do we get Jesus pushed down? How do we keep him back? And in the middle, you see Jesus raised victoriously in the face of opposition on every side. 
And in light of that, I want to propose to you what is our big idea that we're going to see this morning emerge from the text. And that big, big idea is this. Jesus' opposition never stands. His resurrection power is unstoppable. And I think if that's ever appropriate for us to hear, it's on this resurrection morning. The devil and all of his demons can burn down every church building on this planet. The opposition of Jesus will never stand. Jesus Christ and his resurrection power is always victorious. And what I hope you see in your heart of hearts as we get into this text is that, listen, if sin couldn't hold Jesus, if hell couldn't stop Jesus, if the devil himself couldn't stop Jesus, if these political leaders couldn't stop Jesus, if the religious powerful elite couldn't stop Jesus, if the tomb and the guards couldn't stop Jesus, then nothing will stop Jesus in fulfilling his promises both in the world and in your life. And when he says, you too will rise, you can take that promise to the bank. If you trust in Jesus, you too will rise. So let's get into the text. My intro is already a little bit long. We'll get you out of here by noon, I promise. Here we go. Uh, what we're going to do, we're going to take a look at both sides of the resurrection account first, and then we're going to hit the climax in the middle, okay? So we're going to hit the, the buns of the sandwich and then the meat. You with me? I said buns in church. Laugh. Here we go. Okay. Uh, chapter 27, we're going to start in verse 62 with the first scene of the opposition. Here we go. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Let me pause there, point out a few op um, observations. First thing I want you to see, this is the same people that have been opposing Jesus from the very beginning. Okay, these religious elite, these um, religious leaders of their day, since the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, have been stalking Jesus, following Jesus, setting weird religious traps for Jesus, trying to expose Jesus, trying to condemn Jesus. They were the one that brought Jesus up on false charges in front of the Roman authorities, and they have overseen the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus, and Jesus is now dead, and they're still taking swings at this guy, and they're still calling him names. They go to the Roman governor, Pilate, and they say, remember this imposter? They're saying he's a poser, he's a fake, he's a phony, he claims to be the son of God, he clearly isn't. Let's squash this drama now before things get crazy in the land. We want our religious system back, we want the Roman government back, Jesus has ruffled too many feathers, let's squash this thing. So this is Jesus' same opposition in his death that he faced when he was alive. But here's the other option, observation I want to point out. Even though they oppose Jesus, they remember what Jesus said. It's interesting, they remember his promise that he too would rise after three days. What's interesting about that is that I'm not convinced that Jesus' own disciples remembered that. Where are they in this scene? They're nowhere to be found. They've just seen Jesus crucified. They're now hiding, cowardly. Have they forgotten that Jesus was coming back? Well, maybe they have, but the opposition has not. And so here they are. They've called a secret meeting with the Roman government. They're strategizing. They're scheming. They've got to squash this Jesus drama before it gets out of hand. Let's see what they come up with in verse 64. How are they going to do it? They tell Pilate, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud be worse than the first. Okay, so here they do, here they, um, where am I? This is the fourth time I preach this. I'm getting lost on where I am. Uh, so they go up to Pilate and say, here's what we want. We need a guard. Let's seal the tomb so that the uh, disciples don't steal the body and start a rumor. 
What's interesting is they don't think he's actually going to raise from the dead. They don't see that as a viable threat. They have no concern about that. They, they assume he's an imposter. So that's, they're saying, let's stop any um, uh, followers of Jesus from coming and stealing the body and faking a resurrection. Now, what's interesting is um, the religious authorities could have guarded the tomb themselves. They could have gotten a temple guard and put in a temple guard there, but they've gone to Rome, the legal authority, the state, and they've said, we need an official Roman guard to stand guard over the entrance of the tomb. And what they're doing is making sure that, that it's undeniable that no one could have gotten in or out of this tomb. They're saying, we want the Roman government standing in front of this, and we want them guarding the tomb. They know that no simple-minded backwood Galileans like the followers of Jesus would be able to sneak past Rome's best. Here we go in verse 65. How does Pilate respond? Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So here you have... uh, the, the, the tag team of the Roman government and the religious leaders working together saying, yeah, you're right, let's shut this thing down now before this Jesus thing gets out of hand. You have what you need, take a, a team of guards and guard the tomb. And it says three times in verses 64, 65, and 66, the word secure. I think Matthew's trying to communicate, oh, it was secure, all right. We've got Rome's best, Rome's elite guarding uh, the tomb entrance. Uh, it says that they sealed the entrance to the tomb, which is to say they would have put the Roman stamp on it, okay? If this thing is open, anyone would know about it. It is well guarded. It is in, very way, in every way secure. And so now, everything th- seems pretty simple. We've got well-trained guards guarding the tomb entrance. They have one job. Their one job is to guard one tomb with one dead body in it for three days. That's it. If they can do that one thing, Prove that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Don't let anyone steal the Bible. This Jesus nonsense will be shut down forever. Everyone knows that he claimed that he would rise after three days. Their job is very simple, just three days, and the whole thing goes away. But little did they know, they could guard the tomb against tomb robbing. They could secure a corpse from some disciples, but no power in hell could guard against the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Amen? We're going to get to that climax in just a moment. Spoiler alert, there's a resurrection coming. Uh, But before we get to the meat in the middle of the sandwich, I want to hop over to see the opposition on the other side of the resurrection really quick. We're going to hit the top bun before we get to the meat. And so look with me at chapter 28. We're going to go over to verse 11. It says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Um, As we heard read, and we're going to see in a moment, what took place was that an angel showed up, rolled back the tomb, and these guards fainted like dead men, okay? And so um, it's really interesting here. They had one job, guard a dead man for three days, and they failed at their job. So they're coming back, tail between their legs. This is uh, Rome's elite soldiers here, and uh, hashtag fail, okay? This is not the day that they wanted to have. Verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel... They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I want you to see the irony here. Did you catch it? There's some great irony before and after the resurrection. 
um, and that right now, um, the religious authorities are actually funding a lie that they tried so hard to prevent before the resurrection. Let me say it more clear. Before the resurrection that we just read, the religious people said, hey, guards, come here. We're going to give you some money. Make sure that the disciples do not steal the body. After the resurrection, they say, hey, guards, come here. Let me give you some money. Tell everybody that the disciples stole the body. Do you see the irony here? You've got Rome's elite. You've got the religious, well-funded authorities trying to stomp out this man, Jesus, and they fail fantastically. They fail ironically. They can't prevent it, and they can't prevent word from getting out. It is so ironic. Matthew wants us to see you cannot stop Jesus. Furthermore, there's, there's irony in the fact that they guarded the tomb so well. They actually added to the veracity of the resurrection story. In other words, if they had just left the tomb alone, yeah, go bury him. Guess what? If the guy disappears after three days, just say, I don't know, the disciples took him, and the whole world moves on. But now you've got Ro- the Roman seal around the tomb door. You've got Roman guards stationed at the entrance. You have no body. You've got an empty tomb, and now you have a problem. You're the one that has to give an account for where is the, bi- or where is the body here. And so you just see God and the providence of, hu- of, of history of just reminding us that, listen, you can oppose Jesus, you can deny Jesus, you can reject Jesus, but you can't stop Jesus. He will stand in the face of opposition. You cannot stop him. The powerful men of Jesus' day were paying off witnesses, covering up truth, starting rumors. They did everything they could to stop this man, Jesus Christ, but they couldn't do it. Their best attempts to stop him were some of the greatest apologetics that this man is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, your savior and mine. And what we're going to see as we go on, by the way, if you're new, we're going to continue studying Matthew. We've got one more week, two more weeks, and then we're going to study the book of Acts. And we're going to see what this living Jesus did. We're going to see that he appeared to over 500 witnesses over the next 40 days, showing himself to the living world, validating his claims to be Savior, Lord God, King, and Christ. And, and then you realize the fact that today, it is, it is whatever the date is today, it is April 21, 2019, in a post-enlightenment, modern, well-educated era, and even today, some 2.2 billion people on this planet across every continent woke up early this morning to worship Jesus as Savior, Lord, King, King, God, and Christ. Jesus is alive, and he cannot be stopped. Amen? And so what we know is that the opposition to Jesus never stands, but now I want to get to our second point, that his resurrection power cannot be stopped. I want to get to the climax of the story and just see how it unfolds uh, throughout the text and, and uh, examine it with fresh eyes. And so here we go. We're going to be in verse, uh, chapter 28. We're going to start in verse 1. This is the middle section now, the resurrection uh, section. Let's see how it happened. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that is Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Let me pause right there and point out that the setting is significant. I want you to notice that Matthew, the writer, places this event at a time and place in history with real eyewitnesses. When you're writing fiction, when you're writing fantasy, when you're writing folklore, how do you start it? Once upon a time in a land far away. You're saying it doesn't matter. It's just, it's the story that matters. Well, Matthew doesn't give us that option. He said, no, it was Sunday, and it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And you need to realize that when Matthew wrote this biography, it's most likely that Mary and Mary are still alive. Okay, it's most likely that the first recipients of this gospel letter 
and it would have been circulated widely and swiftly after it was first published, they would know where the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was. They would know Mary Magdalene. And, and the gospel writer writes these details in here as if to say, if you don't believe me, just go ask Mary. <laughs> you know where she lives. Go listen to the eyewitnesses. I say all of that to say this, for you today, you can believe or deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is fine. But you cannot say that it's just a metaphorical resurrection. Like, well, Jesus lives on in our hearts. His legacy lives on, and you too will live on in the hearts of your life. No, 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 no. You can think that, but that's not what the Bible says at all. We need to deal with the resurrection of Jesus in its own terms, which is that it is a literal, physical, historical resurrection of the man Jesus Christ. Amen? So we see that this is not allegory, metaphor, hyperbole. It is history, and it is reality. Uh, We go on in verse 2. It says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. There's some more irony here on the opposition of Jesus. These elite guards were there to guard the dead man Jesus. And now at this scene, the only death at the tomb is the guards. The only people looking like dead men are the ones trying to guard Jesus. His resurrection power cannot be stopped. Verse 5, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said, come, see the place where he lay. There's the good news. The angel says, Jesus Christ has raised from the dead as he said. Did you know Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection explicitly three times in Matthew's gospel, implicitly many more, in the other gospels many, many more. In other words, Jesus called his shot And then he made it. Furthermore, the angel says, come and see. Did you ever think about this fact? This this hit me maybe fresh for the first time this year, that, that that the tomb entrance was not rolled back to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in. I don't know how I missed that as a kid. I always thought that the angel rolled back the tomb and and Jesus walked out. No, no, no. You You just heard it. When the stone is rolled away, he's already gone. He ain't in there. I don't know if you guys remember, but a few scenes later, he shows up to the disciples who were in a locked room, and he did not come through the door, okay? He was able to raise from the dead. He's able to walk into a room. He doesn't need any help getting out of a tomb, amen? And so what we see is that the tomb door is opened up, not to let our Lord out, but to let the witnesses in. And the angel says, come in and examine the evidence. The tomb door is open. Come in and see. And you know what? The same invitation is for us. That tomb door was open for Mary and for Mary and for you and for me. It was for the witness to come in and say, Jesus is not in there. Where is he? What could it mean? We read on in verse 9 or in verse 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples and see that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb, and with fear and great joy, uh, they ran and t- to tell his disciples. <laughs> as I read this with fresh eyes this past week, prepping as well, I thought, that's odd. Fear and great joy? Those are not two emotions that generally go together. Like, if I'm, feared, if I'm fearful, I may be scared and I'm angry or I'm anxious. If I'm joyful, I'm probably happy and I'm expecting. And then I realized, no, no, no. Fear and great joy actually pair together all the time. 
as I thought about every life-changing, major, significant moment in my life, it's always marked with fear and great joy. The morning of my wedding day, fear and great joy. Every time my wife said, honey, it's time to go to the hospital, the baby's coming, what did I feel? Fear and great joy. And you realize how human this moment is. Here these women, have, they've seen an angel for crying out loud. They've gone in and they've seen an empty tomb. And now they said, go and you're going to um, see Jesus go and tell his disciples. And of course they're filled with fear and great joy. They're thinking, what could this mean? What does this mean for my life? What does this mean for human history? Is this Jesus truly the Messiah? Could it be? Verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 9. And behold... Jesus met them and said, greetings. I'd have said, ta-da, you know, <laughs> surprise, I'm back. Jesus is very human, says greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. The women have heard the announcement of the angel. They have seen the evidence of the empty tomb. And in this moment, they have seen with their own eyes that Jesus Christ is alive. They had faith, and now he has become to them sight. By the way, I love that of all the people that Jesus could have, appear, uh, could have appeared to first, he chose to honor these two faithful women as his first witnesses. If it were me, just being honest, I'd have gone straight to Pilate, maybe the high priest, maybe Peter. I'd have gone straight to Caesar himself. Said, you think you're Lord, I'm Lord, what's up now? Back from the dead, let's roll. But not Jesus. <laughs> Jesus goes to these two women, the two women who had stayed by his side on Friday night, the two women who were there at his death, the two women who were there at his burial, the first two women who showed up at his tomb to remember him for a visit on Sunday morning, and Jesus appears to them first. And I think what a beautiful picture of the heart of Jesus Christ. He's not chasing power, authority, visibility by the world's means. He's running after the humble. He's remembering the faithful. He's championing the unlikely. Let me give you two last observations here. And uh, as promised, we'll get out of here and get to some ham. Uh, two observations. One is, uh, it is striking that Jesus tells these women to go and tell the male disciples that he is alive. Remember, this would have been totally inappropriate in the culture of the day for a woman to be the one to carry the message to men. The testimony of a woman in this culture and in this day would not have even been considered valid in the court of law. But Jesus does not hesitate to break the protocol of the day to tell these women, bust into a room full of men and you tell them that you have seen me and that I am alive. And in that, I think we see, number one, a picture of Jesus elevating the marginalized, but we also get a great apologetic for the truthfulness of the resurrection story. That is to say, if Matthew was making this whole thing up, if he, was, if he was writing this book to try to save face because he had followed this guy for three years and now he's dead and he's got to make up um, some story because he gave up a lucrative job with the IRS to follow this rabbi and now he's got nothing to show for it. If he were fabricating this whole thing, he would not have made the first witnesses women. They would have been men. The only reason they would have been witnesses is if it was. And wherein we get a great apologetic that this is true. This would have discredited the argument to the first day readers, but not to you and I. We see that this is, in fact, history. Second observation is that it's really subtle in here, but it's really beautiful as I, as I heard it. I'll read it again. Verse 10, Jesus talking to the woman says, Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. So the fear is gone. Now it's just great joy. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
And talking about his brothers, and this is the first time he calls them brothers in the entire Gospel of Matthew, he's referring to the disciples of Jesus Christ. What's so fascinating about that is the people that he is calling brothers are the men that for the last 48, 72 hours, this has not been their brightest moment. They've all abandoned Jesus. They've rejected Jesus. Peter has explicitly denied Jesus three times. These guys are failing in the worst possible way. And yet Jesus comes and he tells the Mary and Mary, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee because I'm going to go and meet them there. You guys, it's a picture of the gospel. What did Jesus come to do? He came to run toward his enemy and make them his friends. He came to run towards those who have rejected him and accept them as a part of his family. It's the very reason he went to the cross, because his disciples needed a savior. He knew that everyone who loved him would abandon him and he would be alone in that final hour on the cross. He would die alone. And yet he died for all those who would abandon him, and he died for you and for me. We too are like the disciples. We too have rejected God. We too have been too proud to identify with Jesus Christ. We too have sought to be a Lord and Savior unto ourselves and build our own kingdom and be our own little gods. We have rejected Jesus, and yet Jesus moves toward us in grace, died on the cross to forgive all of our sins, and says, I want you to be my brother. I want you to be my sister. I want you to come into the family of God where God would be your father, not because you're entitled, not by birthright, but by adoption. Would you come in to the family of God? And the same invitation stands for you and for me today. Why did Jesus die and rise so that we too could be in the family of God? I want to end by just pointing out that in this text, we see three very explicit responses to who Jesus is and what he did. And what's interesting about these three responses from three different characters is that all of their responses are still really very relevant for you and me today. You and I can respond in every way exactly like the three responses that we see in this text today. And so I just want to ask you to pick one of these. How would you respond to the resurrection story? The first option that you have that we see in the text is that you can deny Jesus. That's a very real option. Okay, the religious leaders, they had all the evidences that they needed to confirm Jesus' claims, but to them it was never about evidence, it was always about the heart. And for them to have to admit that Jesus is God and Jesus is the Savior of the world and Jesus is alive would have radical uh, consequences for their lives. They would have to reject everything that they know and surrender their life to the Lord Jesus and, and come in by grace and their pride would not allow them. And so they deny the truth and they persist in their unbelief. And I got to say, some of you are in this room this morning, let's be honest, because a friend or relative kind of literally made you come. Like, they just blew you up on Facebook ad nauseum to where you finally relented and were like, okay, I'll come to church, whatever. And maybe you're here because it's an annual tradition, and this is a prerequisite to grandma's ham. No church, no ham. So every year you come, and you sit, and you listen, and you get the ham. And maybe that's you. And maybe you're here, and you appreciate the message, and you appreciate the music, and you'd appreciate it if I wrap it up soon. And uh, I want to say, listen, um, the resurrection power of Jesus is unstoppable, but, but you can stop it from entering your heart. We see it in the story. These guys knew everything that they needed to know to trust the only way to the Father, Jesus Christ, and yet they persisted in their unbelief. And I just want to say that's a very real option for you this morning. You can reject his love. You can reject his power. You can reject his saving work. You can go get your ham and move on with your life. That's a real option. But I want to implore you to at least consider option two. Option two that we see right in the text, it's a real option for you. A viable response this morning is this, and that is that you can come and see. You can come and see. That was the invitation of the angel at the empty tomb. 
He said, come and see. Just come take a look. I'm telling you to believe anything. Just, just look in the tomb. Notice that the angel doesn't ask the women to shut off their brains and just believe in blind faith. That was never the invitation. It was come and examine the truth. Look and see that the tomb is empty. Use your mind. Use your heart. Use your senses. Use your logic. Observe history, City Light Church, and people in this room. Examine the evidence. What if 2.2 billion people on our planet aren't crazy, but Jesus actually is God? What if everything that you've pursued in your life that's not fulfilling you is because it wasn't meant to fulfill you, but Jesus Christ is. What if Jesus is real and he loves you and he brought you here today so that you would surrender your life to him as Savior and Lord? Would you at least come and see? And I'll give you this. I'm not even going to press for a hard decision today if you're not there. All I'm going to say is, would you come back? Would you get a Bible? Would you examine the truth? Would you come and see? Jesus welcomes you with your fears and your doubts and your objections. And I want you to know, at least me as a pastor, I do too. And so does this church. Come and see. That's all I'm asking. The, the, th- the third option that we see in the text, very clear, is this. We can respond with worship and joy. That was the response, ultimately, of the women as they fell at Jesus' feet. And for many of you in this room, like me, maybe you've received Jesus as your Savior and Lord many years ago, but the invitation for you is the same. I want to invite you and me at the same time this Easter Sunday to to witness Jesus with awe and wonder and worship and joy as though it was the first time. I've been praying that God would give me fresh eyes and fresh faith and fresh awe and that he would do the same for you. Would you worship Jesus like he really is alive? Would you anticipate his return like it's actually coming? And I do have to say for some of you, maybe today is the first time that you would worship Jesus with saving faith. Today can be the day that you would experience newness of life in Jesus, not as a spectator to an ancient story, but as a person who has been forgiven, saved, and made new by Jesus and faith in him. And I want to tell you, it's very simple. It's very difficult, but Jesus did all the difficult part. He did it on the cross. He did it in the resurrection. All you need to do is respond and say yes. Uncle, I surrender. I am a sinner. Jesus, I believe that you are real. You really rose, and you are my Savior. I give you my guilt. I receive you as my Savior. Come into my life today. And if you would do that, the promise of Scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And just in the same way that the resurrection of Jesus could not be stopped, his saving promises for you and me cannot be stopped. And so you can take it to the bank. If you call in Jesus' name, you too will be saved. You will have eternal life. You will be a brother to Jesus, a child of the living God, a home secure in heaven, earned by Jesus and kept secure for you until that last day. And then the scripture promises that we too on that last day will rise up. We too will raise, be raised like Jesus and be raised to be with Jesus and worship him in glory forever. Let's end our time by praying. Jesus, this morning we worship you and we just declare it is true. We have seen it in your word and we believe it in our hearts that you are the living God. This whole thing is not religious tradition and some scam. This is reality. You are the God who loves us and made a a way for us to come back to the Father. God, I pray for the dear saints in this room that this might be their 50th Easter Sunday. Oh God, wake up sleepy hearts to see the awe and the wonder of a living Jesus, not a dead sage of antiquity, but the living God of today who loves us, who is leading our lives, who is protecting us, and who is pursuing us. And God, I pray for anyone in this church that even now would surrender as they pray along with me, Jesus, I am a sinner in need of saving. I have heard the good news and I call on your name. Would you save me? Would you call me brother? Would you take my guilt away? God, would you come and be my Savior and my Lord? I call on your name and ask that you would save me now. I surrender my life to you. Be my Lord and my Savior. Give me eternal life. I receive it as a good gift. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Um, if you've responded with that prayer, I want to say welcome to the family of God. Jesus is your brother and God is your father. Welcome to the family. And now all of us, would we stand to our feet and we, would we spite the devil and worship Jesus like he won? Would we give him the honor and glory that is due his name? I'm going to do it. You can join me. Let's go.